Welcome once again to Mr. Stillman's Opus. It's our third and final episode with Tim Nordgren. He's an estate planning attorney in Chapel Hill at Shell Bray. We're wrapping up this three-episode series talking about estate planning disasters. We talked two episodes ago about the main estate planning documents you need to have. Tim is going to walk us through what can go wrong if we don't have those documents in place, and then we'll wrap up with some of his estate planning horror stories that he's seen over the years, just some of the messiest situations that he's ever had to help people navigate just because of poor planning. So as for the four documents, the will, the durable general power of attorney, the healthcare power of attorney, and the living will. So of those four, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you each one. I want you to tell me um, what's like the most quintessential thing that can go wrong if you don't have this document. So what's the, the, the stereotypical thing that can go wrong if you don't have a will? Yeah, the typical thing that can go wrong is you lose control over what, where your assets go. Um, so there is a statute in North Carolina called intestate succession that directs who your heirs are if you die without a will. And it's based on degree or next of kin, who is the who are the closest relatives. There's a kind of a pecking order where spouse and children are first. And then if there are no spouse or children, then parents. And then if parents are not living, siblings and kind of down the line to nieces and nephews. But the person who has passed away, their estate is going to be distributed based on on state law, not on what they may have wanted. There may have been specific family members they wanted to provide for. There may have been charities they wanted to provide for that um, obviously that will not happen without a will. And then the other thing that gets really complicated is the state administration process when there's no will. There's probate typically. uh, The court appoints an administrator to oversee that process. Usually they have to post bond, which is an insurance policy to insure the estate, which can be quite expensive. And probate when there is no will is a much more complicated process than probate when a person does have a will. Because if you have a will, you identify an executor, you waive this bond requirement, and the process just flows more smoothly. So yeah, dying without a will is a big one. Um, A lot of people do. Another big area is our beneficiary designation. So I should have said earlier, um, you know, a will or a trust would not necessarily control all assets. Um, a lot of assets are controlled through beneficiary designation. So a good example would be an IRA or a 401k through an employer or life insurance. What's critical with those types of assets is making sure that you have a primary beneficiary and you have secondary beneficiaries or contingent beneficiaries. And those assets pass outside of probate, as long as you do not name your estate as the beneficiary. So typically, we do not recommend naming your estate. We want to make sure that our clients have up-to-date beneficiaries on those types of assets. All right. What's the worst thing that can happen? Or maybe not the worst thing, but what's the most common problem you might see if somebody doesn't have the durable general power of attorney? So in that case, um, what typically happens is um, someone has to go to court petition to have the incapacitated individual declared incompetent. And that process, once it gets going, it can be very complicated, very stressful. So the court will set a hearing date. So somebody first off has to step forward and say, I think Uncle John is incapacitated, is making poor decisions. We need the court to intervene. So somebody has to to step up and, and take the initiative of petitioning the court to have a guardian appointed. And at that point, this legal process is kind of commenced um, so the court sets a hearing date. They appoint an attorney called a guardian ad litem, usually an attorney, 
to represent the disabled or the incapacitated individual. And they notify everybody in the family, everybody who may have an interest in this person's affairs, that they have the right to appear at this hearing. And then when we actually get to the hearing, um, it's kind of a two-step process. The first step is to provide medical testimony to the fact that this person is actually incompetent and the court has to be convinced um, that they need a guardian. And, and once that hurdle is, is surpassed, then the next step is who actually is going to be the guardian. And that's where it can get pretty ugly, um, especially if people are showing up who have who, who, multiple people who want to be in that position. That's where they can get up on the witness stand and they can testify about every bad thing that the other person who's vying for guardianship has done. And it can get really we're in a litigation type situation. So it's just a very that's typically what has to happen if somebody does not have a durable general power attorney and they lose the ability to, to make sound financial decisions. All right. Healthcare power of attorney. We don't have it. What's going wrong? Same issue. So, so there are two different types of court appointed guardians. The, with a durable general power of attorney, the equivalent would be the what's called the guardian of the estate. That's the guardian of the money for an incompetent person. If you don't have a healthcare power attorney, uh, there's a, a different type of guardian called the guardian of the person. Also requires a court proceeding. Also can create a situation for family conflict and leaving it up to the court to determine who should be the guardian of the person. So both of those are really critical for that reason. You, as the the person who's creating these documents, have the right to choose uh, who you'd want to serve in those roles and who you trust to serve in those roles and to keep it private and out of the court system. Yeah. And then last thing, the living will. What goes bad if we don't have that? Um, so the living will is more of a statement. What goes bad is... The person who ultimately typically makes the decision, the healthcare power of attorney, may not know what to do. You're putting that person in a tough spot because now the doctors have come to them and said, you know, Uncle John is never going to recover. We can prolong his life, but but we can't treat him. The person has to make this really tough choice and, and may question their own decision for a very long time and live with guilt in some cases. With a living will, you're telling the person what to do what your wishes are. The other thing without a living will, uh, other people can come in and say, can question the healthcare power attorney and say, well, this is not what Uncle John wanted to do. He told me he wanted to be prolonged for at least 30 days or 60 days. Or um, He wanted to be cryogenically frozen so that cryogenic, years from now right. when they find a cure for what killed him, he can come back. Right. I could write a book on this stuff because you can't make it up, but um so with a living will, the healthcare power attorney just holds up the living will and says, no, I'm just I'm just following the instructions. I'm doing exactly what Uncle John wanted me to do. So I think that's more of a, that can, without a living will, it can create a lot of family conflict um, and there can be some guilt on the person, on the shoulders of the person who has to make that decision. All right. So that's what we need to know about each of our different documents. What can go wrong if you don't have them in place? Tim, I know just in general, you've seen a lot of estate plans go wrong. Let's clarify, people that weren't clients of yours to begin with, they're coming to you after the fact, right? right. Saying, help clean up this mess. Uh, yeah. So what are some of the more difficult situations that you had to help people navigate? Yeah, so um, one situation that comes to mind, um, somebody that did a will, fortunately the person was still living when they came to see me, but somebody did a will online um, and they brought the will in to have it looked at. And in talking to this person, it became very clear that the will did not reflect their wishes. They were probably prompted by some 
you know, software to answer questions. And then the, the, the website produced this document. Um, but they were leaving, this person was leaving all of his assets to Duke, um, where he was employed, but he had a spouse and, and, and multiple children who he intended to list as the beneficiary. So somehow in producing this document and, and answering questions that were prompted, he had a will that left everything, disinherited his family because he didn't answer a question correctly. Um, fortunately, like I said, he was still living. We were able to correct the will. I've seen you know, wills that are not witnessed. They're typed, they're notarized, but North Carolina law requires two witnesses plus a notary. And in one case, the person had already passed away. So essentially the person thought he had a valid will and he did not have a valid will. He thought the notary had, had made it valid and, and the notary by itself is not enough. I've had um, beneficiary designations, John, you know this, um, as a financial advisor, People don't review their beneficiary designations, not your clients, because you're going to you're going to stay on top of that for them. But 401ks through work, life insurance policies. Yeah, I think that the quintessential example that I always give people is the, the life insurance where like ex spouse is still the beneficiary that never yeah. got updated. And people just assume, well, anybody with common sense would see that uh, that's not who I intended to leave the money to. I just hadn't updated yeah. it, but that doesn't matter. Right. I'm sure you, I've never, matter. now I give that as a hypothetical to people. I've never actually seen it happen in real life where the ex-spouse is the beneficiary. I'm sure you have yeah. seen it. I have, I have. Yeah. And, um, I'll never forget having a conversation with a, a woman whose husband passed away. And during the course of settling his estate, we discovered that his ex-wife was still his life insurance beneficiary. Even though he had a new will that left everything to his, his current wife, he clearly had forgotten to go back and update the beneficiary designation. And legally, there was nothing we could do at that point in time. The insurance company had the ex-wife as the beneficiary on file. That's where they had to pay the money. And it's really interesting because in North Carolina, if you get divorced and your will says, I leave everything to my spouse, and then you get divorced, the provisions for your ex-spouse and your will automatically become null and void, even if you don't sign a new will. The only way you could actually leave assets to a former spouse is if you signed a new will after you got divorced to say, you know what, I still want to leave money to my ex-spouse because we're we're still on good terms. Interesting. So with a will, any provisions for a former spouse get deleted kind of automatically under under North Carolina law, um, even if you never sign a new will. But that's not true with beneficiaries on life insurance or retirement accounts. You have to affirmatively go in there and update the beneficiaries. So um when I meet with clients, I ask them over and over again to double check beneficiaries. I want to see copies of beneficiary forms um, because I know that how how things can really go wrong if those beneficiary forms are not, you know, up to date, not consistent with the, the plan. I would, I would put beneficiary designation number one in terms of things that can go wrong. Number two would just be having document not having documents at all or, or having documents that are that are outdated. So that's a horrible, that can be a horrible process. So the easy fix, you have power of attorney, you have healthcare power of attorney, you designate who can make financial decisions or healthcare decisions for you if you lack the ability to do, to do that for yourself. Um, so most most of them are, you know, they're all avoidable. That's the good news through good planning. You know, we all hope that we're going to live a long life, that we're not going to need these documents. Probably the reason people put off doing them in a lot of cases. But I think the better approach is to, to have these documents now and just update them from time to time. Review them every five years and just 
update them, but don't, you know, things happen as we all know, don't put this off um, because the consequence for children, spouses can be really difficult and really significant. That's the thing is like, yes, you have to do the work up front to get it done and taken care of, but it's not like it's ongoing work, right? Like other than just, like you said, occasionally review and make sure it's still what you want. But like once it's done, it's done and you don't have to keep thinking about it forever. Can you give us a basic idea of what it costs to get these different documents in place? Yeah, that's a little bit hard to say. It depends on the complexity of the documents. Yeah. So the most basic package is a traditional will, power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney, living will, you know, typically without any trust, you have adult children, you don't, you don't have any uh, special needs beneficiaries, you know, for maybe a thousand dollars to 1500 for a couple uh, at the most. Once we start including trusts in the plan and trusts can be used for probate avoidance, they can be used to control distributions for beneficiaries. You know, it gets to be more expensive because it's more time at the front end. A lot, um, lot more nuance in there. Yeah, there is. So with my clients, I try and do a flat fee. I try to meet with them. I don't charge, you know, I meet with them on a complimentary basis just to get a feel for what we need to do. Um, and once I am able to make recommendations, I can tell them what it's going to cost. But the, the fee, I, I prefer to do a flat fee. Some attorneys probably do hourly. Um, the flat fee is nice because people know when they hire me what it's going to cost to get it done. Um they don't, they're not shy about asking questions and they shouldn't be shy. They should ask questions. Um, and they're not on the clock. They don't feel like they're being nickel and dimed. Um, but the, the flat fee just really does depend on what we're doing. Um, and so that's what that first meeting is really about is to kind of figure out, you know, get a game plan. Let's, let's come up with a game plan and then we can talk about cost. So if it's one of those things you've been putting off and you're probably, worrying about it, right? Like, Oh, I've got to do this. Well, why don't you just do it? And then you can stop worrying about it. Like I said, it's not something you have to do every year. So you'll actually feel better. And then you'll know you actually have this stuff in place. So you don't leave a mess for everybody else. Tim, uh, thanks for these conversations you've had with us. I've gotten a lot of good feedback so far. I think uh, it's been really helpful to people, uh, understanding, uh, what they need to prioritize when it comes to their estate planning. So thank you. You're welcome, John. I appreciate you having me. And thanks to you for tuning in. We'll talk with you again soon right here on Mr. Stillman's Opus. Carolina Wealth Stewards doing business as Rosewood Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor in the state of North Carolina. The material presented is intended to be general information and should not be construed by any consumer as the rendering of personalized investment advice.